So several years ago, um, I was meeting with somebody who had asked to meet with me just because they knew um, some of the things I believe to be true about the scripture. And uh, I was sitting across the table from them and they were describing the decisions that they were gonna be making in this life. And I, I just said, here's the deal. Um, I wanna put myself between you and those decisions. That's what I wanna do. I wanna I want stand between you and that decision that you are going to make. And I remember him looking across the table at me going, I just need you to know that you are the only Christian that I've talked to that told me this because everyone has told me that God only really wants me to be happy. So if this decision is to make me happy, then I should do it. You're the only Christian who is standing in my way from doing that. And I looked at him and I said these words. I said, just because it makes you happy does not mean it will make you whole. Friends, I need you to understand God is for our wholeness. And that may not mean your happiness is right there in front of you. I need you to understand that we, we belong to a God who is so for us that he wants our wholeness more than anything else. And what makes you happy because we live in a broken world may not make you whole. Have you thought about that? Have you, have you been still enough? See, the way the enemy works is he loves to keep us busy so that we won't think that way. We won't think in terms of wholeness. We'll think in terms of happiness. And if we are only concerned about our happiness, then who cares about our conviction? Who cares about scripture? Who cares about Jesus's plan? Because my happiness is all I see before me. But friends, I'm telling you, the lens in which God looks through is our wholeness. And as I stood figuratively in the way of this friend from making a decision, I was the only Christ follower who was willing to say to him, this will not make you whole. It may make you happy, but it will not make you whole. Only Christian. It's troubling. It's hard. This isn't easy because we want happiness really more than anything else. And unfortunately, we live in a society that can begin to use God to get us to our happiness. God just becomes another avenue somehow. But I need you to know the God of the scripture is a God who is whole and he makes his people whole. That is what he, why he revealed himself to us and that is why he speaks to us. Our wholeness matters to our Father. And so I'd like to pray this morning as we begin talking about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And I'd like us to try this morning, because I know that this can be such an intensely personal conviction or an intensely personal journey. I want it known that I'm very aware that most of you in this room, statistically speaking, have been touched by divorce in some way. People that you've known, wives and husbands that you've known, children that you've known, maybe you are one of those. And I need you to know that this is a wholeness conversation and that wholeness is possible even in hard.
and that the Lord meets us in brokenness. If he brings wholeness, where does Jesus have to go? Where there's brokenness. He's not afraid of it. The church should not be afraid of it. Unfortunately, she has been for many years because she doesn't know what to do. So we're gonna pray and I'm gonna ask that the Lord would help us see through his lens why he believes what he does about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Father, I ask that in these moments that you would meet us. And God, I know that this is very personal in many ways because we've seen, we've seen the damage done. We've seen the hurt inflicted. We've carried it. We've walked with it. And I ask that in these few moments that we would truly hear your voice calling us to wholeness. And Lord, may we also be aware of our tendency to run to things that we think are gonna make us happy and whole, but they have nothing to do with our wholeness. In fact, they keep us from it. And so Father, we're just begging your eyes and your ears this morning. It's in your name we pray, amen. We're in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 10. Uh, continuing in the line of difficult conversation pieces as we spoke about the hard struggle of sin and hell last week. Uh, so we're just continuing in those difficult conversations and popular things to talk about this week. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He is going to die. He's made that declaration multiple times. The disciples have not understood it. And on his way, he is confronted by the Pharisees. And these are the words we read in verses one and two. Then Jesus left Capernaum and went down to the region of Judea and into the area east of the Jordan River. Once again, crowds gathered around him. And as usual, he was teaching them. Some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife? Right out of the bat, we have to understand they weren't coming to get an answer. Their goal was to cause a stink. It's just like when a troll shows up on a Facebook thread. It's when a troll shows up in a YouTube comment. Their, their desire is not to engage in conversation. Their desire is to make someone look terrible or draw people into pointless arguments. If you are on wax and Facebook at all, you know what I'm talking about, all right? So this is their drive. It's not to get an answer, but to cause a stink, and they want to make Jesus look bad. You have to understand, these are the dudes who want Jesus dead. They're not goofing off. Like, they want to see Jesus's life ended because of who he is and who he claims to be and what he teaches. So there are a couple of traps that they could have been laying for Jesus. The first being, they happen to be in the region of Herod Antipas. And if you know Herod's story, you know that John the Baptist spoke out against Herod. Why? Because Herod married his brother's wife. Big no-no. John the Baptist calls him out, says that is not how things go. Herod respected John the Baptist, so he would let him live. Herod's wife, hated John the Baptist, so she had his head brought to her on a platter. So maybe, maybe if the Pharisees could draw Jesus into an argument about marriage in the wrong place, you might offend the wrong person, tick them off, 
that person may come after you and your life. Maybe, I don't know. Second trap they could have been drawing Jesus into was the pick a side Jesus. And this one I think we understand. We get this one, all right? In Jesus's day, there were two primary schools of thought on divorce. And both of these views came from their interpretation of an Old Testament passage. And I want you to see it. I want to read it together. Deuteronomy chapter 24 says this. Suppose a man marries a woman, but she does not please him. Having discovered something wrong with her, he writes a document of divorce, hands it to her, and sends her away from his house. When she leaves his house, she is free to marry another man. So you have two schools of thought based on these words here. And if you go back, the, the, that, that, that phrasing, something wrong with her, is actually some indecency. All right. So the whole debate was built around this phrase, some indecency. You had the, the conservative view, which was the Rabbi Shammai crowd. These guys were the super hardcore conservatives. They defined indecency as adultery only. So you had a group of Pharisees in this day and age right here who held to that. The only reason for divorce would be adultery, and that's it. That's the word indecency. Now, you had Rabbi Hillel, who was the more liberal view of scripture. They focused in on that word, some. So instead of some indecency, it was some. In their interpretations, that meant any reason. You could literally divorce your wife if she burned your food. You could divorce your wife in her eyes, in his eyes, if she wasn't attractive to you anymore. You could walk out of a marriage for any reason. So you have one camp over here, any reason. You have one camp over here, adultery only, and they're trying to draw Jesus into this debate. Jesus, pick a side. So whatever side he lands on, people will be like, we knew Jesus was a liberal. We knew Jesus was a conservative. This is the debate. This is what we like to do, right? We do this with Jesus in our own lives. We want to pick a box and we want Jesus to check it so it justifies how we think. That's what we want to do. This is the trap. This is a trap that was being laid for Jesus. So this is really important. When a first century Jewish person or Gentile even for this matter, was sitting and listening to this conversation, the phrasing that they were, heard, were hearing was not, should a man be able to divorce his wife? The question he was dealing with, with was, should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for any reason? And what I mean by this, let me give you an illustration. If I was to ask you a question, should a 16-year-old be allowed to drink? You would probably say no, but then I might respond to you, but then he would die of dehydration. Culturally, you filled in some blanks in your head. I asked you a short question, but you knew the whole question based on the context in which we live. You knew that I was asking you a question about underage drinking and if a student, a 16 year old should be allowed to drink alcohol based on where we live. But in another culture, in another time, that question may be perceived, should a 16 year old be allowed to drink water? Yeah, yeah, right, I think you should. 
Sometimes we hear things through our cultural and context, our, our context in which we live, and we have to explain things a little further. This is the case of what is happening in this text. Mark's gospel is the earliest recorded gospel and probably has the accurate form of this question. And I wanna, and I wanna I'm, I'm doing this because I, we have to, so that we can all journey together. So if you're like history, I don't wanna talk, you have to hear these words as we journey. In Jesus's day, right now, at this moment, this debate between adultery only and any reason was a hot topic. So when the, the Pharisees are saying out loud, should a man be allowed to divorce his wife? The, the uh, subconscious fill in the blank is for any reason, because that's really what people want to know. Matthew's gospel, which is recorded about 40 years later, actually asked the question that way. Listen, Matthew 19.3, some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason. Now, the reason it would be there and not in Mark's gospel is because in Matthew's day, they probably had already forgotten about the adultery only, any reason divorce debate. So in their mind, those phrases were interchangeable. So Matthew had to say for any reason. I need you to understand this is what the debate's about. It's you have people walking out on each other for any reason. So I have to lay this foundation. We have to know what the question is about. Matthew's audience may not have been able to see divorce for adultery only or any reason only. So he needed to make sure that they understood the context of the question. The main question is not should a man divorce. What they are asking is what are the grounds for divorce? That's the heart of the question. What are the reasons? Tell us, Jesus. So Jesus chooses to go there with them. He enters into the marriage, divorce, remarriage conversation. But the way Jesus chooses to do this is not by allowing public opinion and hot cultural topics to sway the way he sees things. He actually is going to focus on the scripture which is so important for you and I. In these words that Jesus is going to turn to, he turns to them because he knows they are life-giving and they bring wholeness. It's just who he is. It's just what he does. It's what God brings. He brings life and he brings wholeness, even though we just want to be happy. Sometimes, what we think will make us happy will not make us whole. And we have to be willing to admit those things. This is the way Jesus says these words, and it actually puts an end to the potential circus. Verses three and four, Jesus answered them with a question. What did Moses say in the law about divorce? Well, he permitted it, they replied. He said, a man can give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away. 
Now to understand divorce, you have to understand the marriage contracts. Yes, they were contracts. I know that's not romantic and we don't like to talk about it that way, but here's the deal. A contract is happening when you exchange vows. And let me tell you why in just a minute. In ancient law codes, Hammurabi codes, Middle Assyrian laws, laws of Nishuna, you can look all these things up. They're available for you to read just as I am able to read them. They all spoke of the institution of marriage. They were, and, and marriage those days was an agreement between families, not just between individuals. How would you like that today, huh? How would you like to have to walk through that? That's a little tougher than we have today. But all of them had some arrangement for a marriage contract and a marriage covenant. Now, I know some of you in this room will be hearing that word covenant, and you'll be thinking, well, that's unbreakable. That's the thing you can't break before God. Here's the deal. The new covenant is unbreakable because God himself established that. But covenants and contracts are broken all the time. Scripturally speaking, in, in the Old Testament, covenants were a promise. They were, hey, let's come together, let's make an agreement, but there was nothing exchanged. A contract means something was exchanged. And if you break that contract, whatever was exchanged and whatever was promised, and if it doesn't happen, it comes with the financial penalties. So there's a contract and a covenant being described in these marriage contracts. There are ceremonies, there are veils, there are witnesses, and there is a verbal formula. And guys, some of the verbal formulas were as simple as, you are my wife, you're married. You are my husband, you're married. Like this is how things work. Now, there was a promise in these vows. Typically, most all these contracts involved food, clothing, and bed, meaning love. All right, so that is what was promised. So a husband would stand, uh, a future husband would stand before his future spouse and say, I promise to food, clothe, and, and, and house for you, uh, a bed for you. And there were definitely some laughing about some of the, the agreements being made. Now in uh, Exodus chapter 21, you can, you can read that Old Testament marriages were not very different from all the other cultures around them. Exodus 21, if a man who has married a slave wife takes another wife for himself, he must not neglect the rights of his first wife to food, clothing, and sexual intimacy. If he fails in any of these three obligations, she may leave as a free woman without making any payment. So in the Old Testament, these are the promises made to give. These are never promises to take from anyone. So a man would say these things, a woman would say these things, and they were promises to give, not take from each other these things. This would be the basis for the contract or the covenant that was being made. So when divorce is on the table, you have to go back to what they talked about. Paul, in the New Testament, in Ephesians, talks about these very same things between a man, a husband, and a wife, and Christ's love for his church. Ephesians 5. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies, for a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one who hates his own body but feeds, there's food, cares for it, nourishment, just as Christ cares for the church. So you and I have essentially been promising to each other the same thing everyone else has been for thousands of years. Now, you and I in our vows don't say, I promise to food, clothe, and bed you. No, that's not what you say. You romanticize it a little bit more, and it comes alongside with, I promise to love 
honor and keep you. I promise to love, cherish, nourish. These are the promises that are made. These have been significant throughout history, what a man promises a woman when they agree to be wed. These, then these contracts become evidence needed for grounds for divorce, neglect, abandonment, and abuse. So this is not just Jesus jumping into the any reason category, and this is not Jesus just jumping into the adultery category. Although as we walk through this, it will look like one of those sides is taken. Now, if you continue on, Jesus asked them, what did Moses say? And they're like, yeah, the divorce papers, they're cool. Send her on her way. Jesus says these words in, in verse five. But Jesus responded. He wrote this commandment only as a concession to your hard hearts. We have to have a foundation here. The concession is given because sin is real and hearts are hard. But then Jesus does something different. He doesn't actually focus in on all the reasons for divorce. He actually focuses on a higher view of what marriage really is. He says this in verse six, but God made them male and female from the beginning of creation. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two, but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Jesus lets them know that divorce was never the plan. Never. It was never a part of the plan. And that's because men and women were created in God's image and made to, when they did marry, reflect this loving God to each other. And the whole earth was to be populated with people reflecting their creator. And it was this, that was the plan. And it's a good plan. I don't know anything wrong with that plan. Like people reflecting the one who made them, like, and then producing offspring that do the exact same thing. Like, that's an amazing plan. But you and I both know that's not where we live right now. Our hearts are hard. And sin is real. And it breaks relationships. It breaks trust. It's selfish and self-pleasing and runs after what it wants more than caring about the needs of another. Jesus tells them that the concession is given because hearts are hard over and over in the Old Testament. Why is it that God tries? He keeps calling Israel back. Your hearts are hard and you're being stubborn. Stop that. And Israel over and over and over chooses to harden her heart against the God who created them. The short answer is that divorce is a hard heart issue and it should be avoided at all costs. Because of Jesus' high view of marriage, divorce should not be pursued if in any way possible reconciliation is there. But Jesus also did say, and God himself spoke the words, divorce does happen. It does not say that it can't happen. Mark chapter 10, verse 9, listen to the words, let no one split apart what God has joined together. 
There are some who believe that, well, because these vows have been made, that it is impossible to break them apart. It is impossible. No, it's not impossible. In fact, broken covenants and broken contracts happen all the time. And we know why now, because our hearts are hard. And there are concessions given because of sin. And we'll see more. Every divorce involves hard hearts, whether both parties or one. And God's design is lifelong marriage. It is this high view of marriage that will guard you from an any reason divorce. The more you look at Jesus's words about the high call of marriage, people start going, oh, I don't know if I should get married. Jesus is like, you're thinking correctly then. A high view of marriage causes you to go, well, then I shouldn't mess around with an any reason divorce then, right? That's correct. I shouldn't just be going, well, she burned the food or, uh, you know, I, I think I, my emotions just aren't there today. I don't think I love her that much today. I don't think I care about them that, that much. They're getting on my nerves. Oh, they do this thing with their teeth. They do this thing where they breathe. They do this. Thing. So it's like all these things where you're like, oh, that's a good reason. Any reason divorce. Jesus is saying you have a very low view of marriage if that is your attitude towards it. So divorce being avoided at all costs because of the high view of marriage. But Jesus doesn't simply look at reasons for divorce. He's trying to change the way we see marriage. He's trying to bring us into the bigger, fuller picture in God's design for his people. It was such a high call. Jesus's disciples at the end of Matthew's account say, then, then who should get married? It's a good question. It's a really good stop, pause, ask the tough question, then who should? If I don't see marriage in the way Jesus does, then should I take those steps? Or am I okay with my wholeness in, in my singleness and letting the Lord deal with some of those things in me before I take the next step? And the answer is yes. You stop, you pause, you submit yourself to the will of the Lord and go, God, please show me what I'm missing. In Malachi chapter two, these words are spoken by our creator. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So guard your heart. Do not be unfaithful to your wife. Near Eastern cultures, adultery was not cause for divorce. It was actually cause for death. I need you to know that. Like, because it would almost be considered a political crime against society. It was a cultural destabilization that goes on when adultery and the marriage covenant and contract was broken. So these, citizens, these, these, um, these groups of people saw it as detrimental to the forward progress of society. Now, I also need you to know that the death penalty was not carried out very often for adultery because it takes two witnesses and you don't always have two witnesses around when things go down. So many of them did end in divorce and not death. But divorce was never God's plan, but it is allowed. God hates divorce in an intense way. And for truly him to love us as he does, he has to hate divorce. 
couple of reasons. First, it breaks covenant that we made before God. While Old Testament marriages were very similar to most of the Near Eastern cultures around them, there was one major difference. Malachi chapter two, listen to the difference between an Old Testament Jewish wedding and now not Christ follower wedding and the rest of the cultures around. Malachi two says, you cry out, why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? I'll tell you why, because the Lord witnessed the vows you and your wife made when you were young, but you have been unfaithful to her. There is one primary difference between a Christ following wedding and a Jewish wedding at the time and the rest of the cultures around them. The Lord himself becomes a witness in that union. And I'm not just talking about one who lays eyes on that union, but a witness. You guys have probably been to a wedding where the pastor says they, they say the vows to themselves, to each other, and then he looks to the congregation, right? And he says, will you promise to da, 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 da. How many of you have actually done the things that that pastor asked you to do? Most of us probably just, it's a formality. We say those things, but the truth is in those days, the witnesses to a wedding were the ones who were called on when there were problems. The witnesses were the ones who would observe that, man, this marriage is headed for trouble. Hey, hey, I'll babysit for you guys so you can go go on a date. I'll babysit. I'll help you with this decision. I will walk with you. If you need counseling, let us know. We'll watch the kids. However, this was the role the witnesses would take. If there was financial struggle, they would come and come around. And this is the position our Father in heaven takes when we say these things to each other. A Christian marriage is not when two Christians get married. I need you to hear me. There are Christian marriages that are not Christian marriages. A Christian marriage is one when a husband and a wife submit themselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and then in doing so, submit themselves one to another. That is a Christian marriage. And the reason divorce is hated by God is because he knows what is broken. He knows what has been broken and what can be lost. Aside from that, divorce harms the innocent spouse. In many cases, there is one who is innocent and one who is hard-hearted. We've seen it happen many times. Oftentimes, it's both hearts are hard and there's irreconcilable differences and you can't make things work. But many times, there is one who is wounded because of this severely over the other. It also harms children. We've seen this. I could bring you statistic after statistic, yet somehow those statistics haven't moved us. They haven't moved us to fight for our marriages in the way God desired us to. And then lastly, it harms community. We don't think of it that way, but in their day, they did. Adultery and divorce in this scenario became very destructive in communities because it pits sides against each other. And ultimately, we're failing at the greatest two commandments in loving each other and loving God. You can see why God has to hate divorce because he loves people so very much. Divorce shouldn't happen, but it does. And God has allowed for it. Our hard hearts, we've already talked about, John Frame, a theologian, put it this way. He said, God determined that a prohibition of all divorce would be for fallen people unbearable and therefore counterproductive for good social order. 
Sin would certainly lead to divorce. The law could not be expected to prevent that. The best thing that the law could accomplish would be to regulate divorce, to mitigate its oppressiveness, and maintain the rights of those cast aside. To not allow a valid divorce for unfaithfulness, neglect, abuse, or abandonment would only further harm victims. And poor interpretation of these passages has allowed churches the platform to just say, you stay in that marriage. You stay in that marriage. You stay in that marriage. And yet we see these things continue to happen. We see spousal abuse. We see the unprotected rights of the victims. We see all of these things. So for God to say divorce is permissible is to say we acknowledge the destructiveness of forcing someone to stay in a relationship in that way. But also, also in the Old Testament, a valid divorce protected the rights of the victim. When a divorce certificate was issued to a woman, she was given free rights. It was a way of protecting her so that she could, in fact, prove that she had been divorced and then given the right to remarry. As this conversation ends with Jesus in the public, the Pharisees are done. Privately, he has a conversation with his disciples. Verses 10 through 12 say this. Later, when he was alone with his disciples in the house, they brought him, they brought up this subject again. He told them, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery against her. That sounds like Huge thing right there. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries someone else, she commits adultery. If we take our English understanding of these words and not a correct cultural context, we will hear these words and we will enforce these unreasonable things on people. But we also are missing God's high view of marriage as well. If we read these words in the context of the first century listeners, remember the debate, any reason divorce? Adultery only divorce. Jesus is saying if a man or a woman divorces his husband or wife for any reason, that is not a valid divorce. So technically, they are still married. And yes, if you go and join yourself to someone else, you are committing adultery. So when you read these words, Jesus is saying, if a husband divorces his wife for any reason and then goes and hooks up with someone else, they are committing divorce or they are committing adultery because they are not technically divorced. And any reason divorce is an invalid divorce. So when you read these words, you hear the whole story. Jesus is not okay with people just leaving willy-nilly. Jesus doesn't mention Neglect, abandonment, but his silence does not suggest he's against those reasons. For neglect and abandonment, you and I have to look at Paul's words. Paul was in Corinth, a Roman-controlled city. In Roman law, divorce was easy. You could just walk out. No papers, nothing. You could abandon your entire family just because you wanted a new one. There was nothing to sign, no documents to rip up. You could stand up in front of a whole bunch of people and go, they are no longer my wife, and that would be an official divorce. So abandonment happened all the time. So Paul begins to speak to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and you can read 1 Corinthians 7 on your own. There's a lot to marriage, divorce, remarriage in that chapter. 
But he says these words, but for those who are married, I have a command that comes not from me, but from the Lord. A wife must not leave her husband, but if she does leave him, let her remain single or else be reconciled to him. And the husband must not leave his wife. Same context and conversation piece happening here. So for an invalid reason and any reason walking out, abandonment is not an option. For a believer, abandonment is never an option. And if he or she is abandoning for an any reason divorce, then yes, that person should stay single or they should reconcile. That's hard, right? Because that, that, that flies in the face of my happiness. Like I just wanna be happy. Well, to separate for an any reason divorce we see the scripture saying, then don't, don't go remarry because the chances are you're just gonna do the same thing again, again, and again. So don't establish that pattern. In fact, Paul says what Jesus would have taught, reconciliation is always, always, always on the table for the Christ follower. That was actually shocking to the Pharisees because for them, adultery would have been the reason. Everybody's out, we're done, we can't do. And Jesus actually said, forgive. How many times should I forgive the person that I've, that's offended me? Well, seven times 70, keep doing it. But we also know that there comes a point when the victim says, I'm done. And so because of the hard-heartedness of human beings, allotments have been made. Paul continues in verse Corinthians uh, chapter seven, verse 13. So reconciliation is always possible, but he does give this. And if a believing woman has a husband who is not a believer, and he is willing to continue living with her, she must not leave him. For the believing wife brings holiness to her marriage and the believing husband brings holiness to his marriage. Otherwise, your children would not be holy, but now they are holy. But if the husband or wife who isn't a believer insists on leaving, let them go. Let them go. In such cases, the believing husband or wife is no longer bound to the other for God has called you to live in peace. So here we're hearing neglect, abandonment, free to remarry. If a divorce certificate was given in those days, remarriage was assumed. It was not fought against. It was actually, for Jews, it was a pious thing. It was like, we've got to marry and we've got to populate the earth. That's for us to do. That's what we need to do. In Roman culture, it was citizenship-based things that there were taxes and things and money was on the line. So when there was a divorce, remarriage was assumed. It just was. But the thing about the, the Old Testament and in the scriptures, they were giving women protection. There was a protection to the one who was the victim so that her husband could not just come back and reclaim her if he wanted. In some Near East cultures, the Middle Assyrian cultures, the wife was property for five years after a divorce. So if that woman had found someone else to marry and had children with that new husband, the husband could come and say, I want my wife back and he could actually take the kids that they had had back. In war times, if a wife thought that her husband had died, for the, for the next two years, if the husband did return, he could come and take back his wife. So many times women weren't even looked at if they knew they had a, pre a previous husband, the men would not take risks 
in marrying these women who had been coming out of these conversations. Now the law of Moses was revolutionary for remarriage. Every woman had equal rights to remarry once they were given the divorce certificate. The divorce certificate allowed and assumed remarriage. It gave women freedom from the husband who neglected her and freedom to remarry without fear that she would be reclaimed. This is a very difficult conversation and I believe Ray Ortland puts it very well as we continue having this conversation. Nothing is more natural in our fallen world today than trying to build a marriage on a foundation of God avoidance, but it cannot work. Without peace with God, we are inevitably shattering the peace we desire with one another. Only the gospel of Jesus can free us from this endless power struggle and restore romance, the beauty, the joy, the harmony God intended. Nate, you and the team can come wanted to ask, and I wanted us to go, well, how do we take this? Because if the primary question of Bible study isn't, what do I think it means, but really what did the writers intend for us to hear? We ask it in their context, and then we say, well, what does that point to for you and for me? I am not here telling you that Christian marriages are perfect. In fact, I already explained to you what a Christian marriage is. A Christian marriage is, is, is two Christ followers submitting themselves firstly to the Lordship of Christ, so we have to ask that question, and then submitting themselves one to another. That's not always the case in what we see today. So what about you this morning? If you have been divorced for an, any reason, divorce. If you are single, I'd ask you to consider what does it mean to stay single? And what does it mean to journey with a church that would journey with me as I'm wrestling these decisions? I'm asking you to consider seeking counsel and seeking the scripture. What if you are already married, but you came from a, any reason divorce? Should I end this one and go back? No, no, you shouldn't. The beautiful thing about God is his ability to restore and give hope and change direction and bring healing and bring, uh, bring health and bring life to these situations that may have started in crazy amounts of brokenness. If you have been walking this any reason, I just want my happiness rather than walking with, God, you alone make me whole. Not even my spouse can make me whole the way you make me whole. I need to be leaning on you. Would you consider that this morning? If you've been divorced for any of these valid reasons of neglect, abandonment, abuse, unfaithfulness that we see in the scripture, I need you to hear you are free do not carry the burden of shame or guilt, but know that God has provided a way for you to know new life. Approach the next with great humility and caution and bring honor to the Lord in your singleness. What if you're struggling in a marriage that seems to be in any reason struggle? Those are real and we should talk about them. 
Run to your witnesses and ask for help. I know that takes humility, but that is what the community comes together for. Run to God as your witness for help. He stood there with you on that day and he is available all times. Humility seeks him out. Run to your church in this place, find marriage mentors, people that have been doing this a long time would love to sit with those of you that have not. Journey with people, hear their stories, hear how they got through the struggles and the sufferings of hard times. That's what we do together. Reconciliation is always on the table, always. When we are submitted to Christ, we know that there is a possibility that he can change everything. So as long as we can, we walk that road, but when it becomes clear that it is not, we also walk the road to help people live new lives as they pick up the pieces from previous lives. This is hard, it is difficult, but we are doing it in the life, of, life together. If you are aware of a couple headed for an any reason divorce, I'm begging you to offer yourselves to help. Say, hey, I'll babysit so you guys can go on a date. You guys haven't sat together forever. Just how can I help? That's what a community does for each other. We say and we have and we talk and we don't leave. We walk with each other in this way. Being an agent of reconciliation, being a peacemaker, this is what children of God do. That's how he has labeled us. What if you are in a struggling marriage that involves adultery, abandonment, or neglect? My first question to you is, are you safe? And I know for some of you right now, you may not be able to answer that question, but my first question to you is, are you? I'm telling you, your church is standing right here, ready to journey that with you. Are you? If you're not, then we wanna make ourselves available as best as we know how. But if you are in one of those, reconciliation is always possible, but we also know that hard hearts lead to victims having to be released. We wanna journey that with you. We'll walk with you as we know and as Christ would give us way to do that. What if you are single? and you're hearing all of this, I'd ask you to consider these things. Jesus doesn't make marriage or children the point of life. I need you to know that. I need you to know that in Jewish culture where marriage, family, children was everything, he spoke these words to his disciples at the end of Matthew's account. Jesus' disciples said to him in Matthew 19, if this is the case, it's better not to marry. Jesus has just laid out this high view of marriage. He says, not everyone can accept this statement, Jesus said, only those whom God helps. Some are born as eunuchs, some have been made eunuchs by others, and some choose not to marry for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone accept this who can. If marriage and sex and children, that's your idol, Jesus says, you can put it down. You don't have to carry that. In that culture, it would have been expected of people, but Jesus shocked them by saying, it's not the end of the world to stay single for the sake of the kingdom of God. If it's your idol, you, you can put it down. It doesn't define you. 
Jesus does. And so as someone who may be single, do you have this high view of marriage or are you rushing to get to the next? Are you looking for any reason not to be single? I'd caution you against that as well as your pastor. And lastly, if you are married, do you see the power of the covenant that you have spoken before God as the reason that you keep the contract? It's the power and the strength to know the power of marriage. Know they're not perfect, because we're not perfect. But we have a witness who stands ready to, to come to our aid in the power of God our Father. This is a hard thing to speak about, but my question is to us, are we willing to submit ourselves to our Father because he brings wholeness. I don't expect this time together to convince you of everything that I've spoken about, but I hope it will encourage conversations. I hope it will bring more to the table to where wholeness is what is thought about, not happiness. Yes, happiness can happen, but wholeness is so much better because it's in wholeness that we find our identity in Christ and it is solid regardless of what I've walked through, the failures I've made, the mistakes I've done, the things I've said, the hurt that I've caused, I have been made new in Christ. And as we go to the corners of the room this morning, we take that bread and we take that juice. While, uh, while concessions were given for divorce, it never excuses sin. It never does. It just shows us the depth of the reality of our sin and brokenness and need for a savior. So when you go to the corners of this room this morning and you take that bread and you dip it in the juice, you are able to say, God, even with my hard heart, you have been faithful to love me, your mercy towards me. It changes me that you have been kind even when I have rebelled. You have been good even when I have been unfaithful. You have stayed to your name and you have not forgotten me. Thank you for looking on me and restoring me and wherever you're at on this spectrum to know that you can change everything. That is our hope. And as Jesus would not be swayed by public opinion and he points us to the scripture, I hope that we can journey that together as his church. While God does hate divorce, he so loves people. He loves you and he loves me with the unending, never giving up, always chasing love that the children got to hear about this morning. Let's pray. Father, I do ask that in these moments as we've looked at very difficult discussion pieces and hot topics and very personal in nature discussions, would you bring healing? God, we, we live in a broken world. And I think anytime we look at marriage, divorce, and, and, and all that comes with it, we recognize it. And instead of us turning our eyes away from it, would we turn our eyes to Jesus? Would we see wholeness and we see help coming from you and you alone? It's in your name we ask all these things.